Hello and welcome to the RTE Brainstorm podcast, a home for new ideas and insights on Ireland and the world. It's a unique partnership between RTE and the Irish third level institutions. Now, enjoy the show. Hello. Scientists keep telling us that getting good quality sleep at night time helps prevent cancer, it's good for our hearts, it improves our memory, helps prevent stress and generally makes us all feel pretty great. So why is it that so many of us are getting so little sleep? That instead of prioritising it, we're staying awake longer, getting up earlier and squeezing the night into a shorter and shorter period. A candy-coloured clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright Well, we're going on a journey into the world of sleep with two researchers who want to persuade us all to celebrate nighttime sleep by spending more time doing it. Into the magic Samantha Dockery from UCC and Giles Warrington from the University of Limerick, you're very welcome to Brainstorm. Samantha, how did you sleep last night? Um, I didn't sleep that well, actually, Ella. Um, I was thinking about all the things I had to do today, including coming in. Um, And at the end of a day, what I would usually do is think, that's what I've done today, and not think so much about the next day. And last night, I spent a bit too long thinking about what I was doing today, so I didn't sleep very well. And Giles? Not that great, actually. Normally, I sleep pretty well, but I've just come back from a few days off, and you get back to work, and there's all the chaotic things going on. So it was kind of those things going through my mind. So I really wasn't practising what I preached last night, which is kind of bold. And do you have a memory of the best night's sleep you've ever had? Uh, Yeah, I I think I would have a lot of good night's sleep. And I think it's very much when you have a good routine. I think it's in your own bed and it's you're in that normal sleep routine. You're going to bed at the same time each night and there's not too many external stresses that play on you. Um, I think it's when that gets disrupted, when maybe when you've been away and you come back and things going on is when you get the bad night's sleep. So I think if the routine is there, generally, I think I have a fairly good night's sleep. And you keep a notebook by your bed. Yeah, I think I think it's a useful tool. So I'm a kind of reflective person. I think one of the things why people don't sleep well at night is there's a lot of things going on in their mind. They think about maybe what happened in the day, what they did well, what they didn't do well, what's going on the next day. So I just think a a very simple thing is just a paper notebook. It's by the side of the bed. Maybe for 10 minutes, you just reflect on the day, you know, what went well, what could you improve on? If there's any kind of key things you want to think about for the next day, but then you park it, you close it, you put it away, and it helps to declutter the brain a little bit. You're just starting that process of getting ready for sleep. Samantha, you're a lecturer in the School of Applied Psychology. You've had experience in Australia, in Penn State University in America, City University in London. I understand that you locked into the idea of sleep as something that's a real major factor in our physical and mental well-being. When you were looking at the mental and physical health of teenagers, is that correct? That's right, that's right. I became interested. So one of my um, central areas of interest is how teens grow well. And they grow well in lots of ways, but they need to sleep to do that. And so I was working with just over 100 teenagers in the States and having them describe what was a good day, what was a bad day. And 
just as an aside, I was thinking, well, how does that affect their sleep? Why should I have to control for this if I'm trying to understand their psychological well-being, their, their physical health? And what I began to understand is that they were so linked. So whether they'd had a good day or a bad day, a day full of hassles or a day full of uplifts, that that related to how much sleep they had that night and then that predicted their weight gain over the, over the year, their mental distress, their depression, their anxiety, as well as some of the more benefits, so they, whether they were performing in academics settings and so on. And that was quite a revelation to you? It was actually. Um, so it was it was some years ago and we were just really at the beginning of understanding how important sleep was. So I think we're, we're at that stage now where we, we understand its importance but we still know so little about it. And it's interesting Giles isn't it because the big question I suppose is why do we sleep but as Samantha said well, we don't really know do we? That's the fascinating thing and I think if you look at the research over the last few years it's really exploded a lot of theories and concepts out there, but we still don't really know. There's a number of theories out there kind of going back to kind of the, the evolutionary idea as being one of the starting points that the caveman, during the nighttime, they wanted to protect themselves from the predators, so they'd lock themselves away in the caves and be protected. There's this idea of inactivity. So at a period of, of at nighttime when it's difficult to, to gather crops and food to eat, you want to be inactive. I think more compelling in, in, in modern society would be restorative. So in other words, you sleep, you restore... Um, uh, mental function, physical function. We know that, for example, athletes, when they train, it's during periods of rest recovery, and particularly sleepers when the adaptations occur, not not in the training sessions itself. And then finally, there's kind of kind of brain function, neuroplasticity. And we know that, for example, young babies, they sleep more because they need that. So in other words, they're, they're de developing their, their, their nervous system, et cetera, over, over the course of sleep. So, so what, I think the latter two are probably the most important. So what you're saying is it's wrong to assume that sleep is rest. It's a very active period. It's absolutely inactive. Processing and it, restoration. Absolutely. And it's, they've sh shown that it reduces inflammation, for example. So we know that disease in sleep deprivation studies. So a lot of what we know is not so much about sleep and how good is sleep, it's when you don't sleep and you get sleep deprived. So a lot of sleep deprivation studies have shown the negative effects of poor sleep. So of course we know that you know sleep is good, but we still don't fully know. If you think of the average person, about a third of their life that they'll be sleeping. So if you take expected life expectancy, um, most people will be sleeping approximately 27 years of their life. So clearly it's important but we still need to get to the bottom of why we sleep and why we sleep so much. Can you explain um, the sleep cycle? I mean, I think of it sometimes like a washing machine cycle, but what exactly is it and how does it change over time? So it changes. Um, so the sleep cycle is a very regular pattern across 90 minutes at the beginning of a night where people move through different stages of sleep. And most people can think about, have heard about REM sleep and non-REM sleep. So um, as you begin, uh, as you go to sleep at night, you move through gradual kind of uh, periods or stages of sleep as you enter into a very deep sleep. And those sleep, that, sorry, the REM sleep becomes extended across the night course. Those, that cycle, Giles, is repeated and repeated and repeated. That's right. So you have a, a series of these appended together. And what, what's interesting in, in this, this deep sleep, the kind of what we call slow wave sleep, that's when a lot of the benefits in terms of recuperation, repair, some of the uh, memory function occur, but also in the, the, the REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep is important for memory function as well. But what's very interesting, when you look at, um, if you look, look at polysomography, which is how we measure sleep in a sleep lab, the early sleep cycles where you get most of your deep sleep, 
So it's important that if, if you are going to have fairly short periods of sleep, that the early part of the night seems to be the most important because that's where you're getting most of your deep sleep and that's the recuperative benefit. And how does the sleep cycle change from babies just being born to when you're 80, 90 years old? So generally with babies, it's shorter. So uh, as Samantha was saying, a typical cycle is, is around about 90 minutes. It varies slightly. With, with younger, younger children, infants particularly, it's around about 50 minutes. So it is a shorter period of time. Um, with, with older individuals, it's, the sleep is more fragmented. It's more disruptive. It could be due to things like pain. It could be the need to get up to go to the toilet. It, it could be insomnia, these kind of factors. But, but generally speaking, the sleep cycle for most kind of healthy adults will be around kind of 90 minutes. And it's a series of them put together will be the course yeah, of a night's sleep. The, and that would change across the life course. Not so much how many stages or the, or the pattern of them, but how long people would sleep or therefore how many cycles they would go through, how many mm -hmm. of these washing cycles as you described it. And that changes across childhood into the teen years and then into adulthood and late adulthood. Yeah. Well, working when we all should be sleeping at night time is obviously bad for us. Here's some archive from 1993. Yeti Redmond spoke to people who work at night and they told her what it was like to having to work nights and sleep days, beginning with this nurse. I work seven nights on, uh, started at quarter to nine and finished about quarter past eight in the morning. I find the hours very long, very draining. Towards the end of the week, you're very, very tired. You're emotionally tired as well as, well as being physically tired. Nighttime work takes out your whole day. You work during the night, you go home whatever time you get home, but I get home at what, half seven, eight in the morning. You're usually wired to the moon for an hour or so, so you're not getting to bed before nine. Whenever you get up in the afternoon or late or early evening, you get up, you're wandering, stumbling over the furniture. You may eat, you may not. I personally force myself to eat, even though I don't feel like eating a lot of the time. That's one of the big problems about night work. But you're hanging around, waiting to go back to work again. I had an experience years ago on nights when my family were very small and uh, the job I was working in another newspaper we were having terrible problems with the press and myself and my friend went nearly uh, 30 hours right through without any sleep or whatever and uh, got the machine sorted out fixed up and everything so I got home eventually and I was asleep about four hours and my five-year-old daughter came in and woke me up on her way out to school after about two hours sleep and I said, Jesus Louise, what are you waking me up for? You know I've only just gone to bed, but Dad, I haven't seen you. I just want to say hello. And all of a sudden I said, Jesus, what's, there's something wrong here. You know, that uh, and so from then on that sort of woke me up like, you know, I said, right. Uh, in future, there's no way I was going to work hours like that. The horrors of working through the night there. Uh, Giles Warrington, why is it so bad for you to work through the night? And, and what is the biological driver of that? Well, I, I suppose the main thing is this sleep-wake cycle. So the circadian rhythm is often called the, the circadian clock or the, the body clock. Um, and it's, it's associated with the, the light-dark cycle. So what happens when you have daylight, bright light, daylight, um, that gets into the eye, into a, a, a central part of the brain, uh, 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 and that has a key key role to play because what ha actually happens is that 
that stimulates you to stay awake. So we often encourage people in the early morning to have bright daylight for that stimulus. But as the day goes on, um, what happens is you get into the darker period and there's less light and um, the pineal gland is then stimulated to re release this thing, this hormone called melatonin. And melatonin is associated with, with the need to sleep and heightened kind of drowsiness and requirement to sleep. So obviously, um, if you're a shift worker and you're working in artificial light, for example, that's telling your brain different things. So you're, you're, you're effectively out of sync. And if you fight against your body clock and you fight against this sleep pressure, what are the consequences? And I'm thinking of things like cancer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for example, again, a lot of the work relates to shift workers, particularly night shift workers. So there's, there's higher incidence of cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, obesity. Diabetes have all been shown to be affected. And interestingly, the World Health Organization uh, fairly recently came out with a statement that for night shift workers, um, it's probably uh, a likely carcinogen. So there's a strong association between cancers in night shift workers way above what you'd normally expect to see in the general population. And Samantha, when it comes to your body clock, I mean, everyone has a natural body clock that they're born with. Right. Some people are more inclined to wake up early in the morning and feel OK. Right. Like me. Other people are inclined to, to, <laughs> to, to not be OK. Yeah, else, yeah. We think, think you know, I, I, I wilt at night time. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you keep your body clock healthy, if that's the right question to ask? I mean, how do you make sure that the body clock is in a, it's performing at its peak? Um, I think one of those things is to align with when you're doing things with when your body clock is and that's often something we don't have a lot of control over. So we would often measure, use measures to ask people or to tap into are they a morning person or are they an evening person and what we find is that we can ask a simple question are you more alert in the morning or the evening and that's just as or telling their other as, a, yeah, <laughs> as, their other, or as a doing a 20, 20 item measure um, and if once people know that they can start doing their activities that are most important at those times if their world allows them to if their work if their school allows that and for most of us it doesn't quite work that way and for people Giles who are not morning people mm -hmm. getting up in the morning is the equivalent is it of, of waking me up at four in the morning and asking me to work I mean you're just in a fog absolutely absolutely and I suppose the a hobby horse of mine is the adolescent is that a lot of parents would look at their, their kids wanting to get up go to bed late get up late as being lazy in fact, that's incorrect. There's a, there's a change in these two sleep systems. Um, the, there's a delayed response. So they want to go to bed later. And this is primarily due to hormonal factors, but it's also due to things like light. And I, I suppose a, a big issue is things like blue light from phones, etc., um, would be an issue. But there are hormonal factors. So they want to go to bed later. They want to get up later. But what's happening is they're encouraged to go to bed earlier. They have to get up uh, early in the morning to go to school, to study where we want them to excel when they're tired, they're groggy. So it makes no sense that schools would start at half past eight in the morning. It'd be far more sensible that they would start at, say, for example, 10 o'clock when they're alert. Now, there are logistical challenges accepted of that. Obviously, timetabling, parents having to go to work and drop kids to school. But there have been some very nice studies done for the United States in this area. And they've shown that not only did academic achievement go up when school time started at 10 o'clock, but the incidence of car fatalities and car crashes mm. was reduced as well. It's extraordinary. So obviously yeah, a very other... strong case for making school start later in the teenage years. Uh, absolutely. So 
And one of the things that is changing with the teens is that the cortisol, which is a hormone that we often think about as stress, is also kind of gets us up in the morning. We have a big peak of it, a big rise, almost 100% in the first half an hour, and it gets us up, gets us going. Teens have a bit of a shift in that. So not only is there a good argument for aligning their school times with when they're biologically most kind of alert and awake, they enjoy school more, they have better, um, they're better able to manage their behaviour, to manage their emotions. Um, there's lots of positive benefits for teens starting school later and the evidence is there at least from some studies done in the states I can get you sleep I think about the implications of diving into deep and possibly the complications and, and what about the kind of um, stimulus that, that, that make us stay awake? So caffeine being an obvious one, alcohol being another yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Recently, blue light because yeah. of screens. Yeah. Um, they all fight against the body clock. Is that correct, Al? Absolutely. I mean, I, for example, people, there's this misnomer that alcohol helps you sleep. But alcohol, yes, it's a sedative, but it's going to cause very disruptive sleep. It's very fragmented sleep. You're probably going to toss and turn. You're going to be dehydrated. But also you probably want to get up in the night and go to the toilet. So it's, it's not a good thing. So, uh, this, the same with um, uh, smoking, for example. You know, smoking is going to stimulate. It's a stimulant. So that's going to, apart from all the carcinogen effects, it's going to have a negative effect from that point of view. Generally speaking, with caffeine, the recommendations would be that you would try and avoid excessive caffeine uh, after about six o'clock at night. Um, and other things like nutritional factors can, can be a consideration. We, we do know from some of the research we've been doing, looking at nutrition and sleep, that um, certain types of nutrition can be beneficial. So there's certain things that are high in melatonin, high in, in other things, neurotransmitters like serotonin, kiwi fruit, for example, may be beneficial to have those. But also timing of meals and the type of meals can be uh, crucial in terms of quality of sleep at night. So it's not necessarily what you eat, it's when you eat and when you don't eat? I think it's what and when. What and when. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Samantha, blue light, so screens, it is a kind of caffeine, is it? Um, I, I think the evidence is a bit mixed, actually. So especially more recently, as many people have either installed blue light kind of blocks on their screens or many new, new devices come out with that. Some of the research we're doing actually suggests it's not so much that they're looking at light, it's what they're doing when they're on screen. So when they're engaging with their friends, they're having conversations, they're becoming very emotionally aroused, and that causes the release of cortisol, this stress hormone. Um, and so that may be what's keeping them awake. That may be what's disrupting their sleep rather than the light in and of itself and so the only way to know that is either to use allow them to use devices which don't emit this blue light or to be able to say well how are you feeling now how distressed are you how emotionally aroused are you how excited are you and it is different when they're not watching things on screen or engaging on screen than when they're reading a book well if your social life affects your sleeping pattern you could potentially be suffering from something called social jet lag and while it may be tempting to have a lie-in at the weekend to compensate is it worth it dr andrew coogan of maynooth university explains a bit more Social jet lag is essentially the difference between when we wake up because of societal or work demands versus the time that we should be waking up according to our own physiology and biology and our inbuilt 24-hour circadian clock. Now, thankfully, on work-free days, so days that we're free from other social and work commitments, 
our wait time is actually more naturally dictated by this intrinsic circadian clock. Social jet lag is essentially the difference between wait time on work days when we've got to get up because we've got to be in for work for half eight or nine o'clock in the morning and days that we don't have that commitment and we're free to wake up whenever we want. Now for most of us that's the difference between the working week and the weekend but it will vary for different people. The time that we wake up at the weekend is actually much more reflective of the time we should be waking up all the time. This is the waking time determined by our biological clock. Dr Andrew Coogan of Maynooth University there. Samantha, should we use an alarm? Or should we not just wake up when we want to wake up? If only we could. <laughs> that would then that would then be reliant on us going to bed when we needed to go to bed. So if we can tune into our natural cues of when am I, when do I need to sleep and when do I need to wake up? There's some devices now or some clocks which um, say that they will align you and then wake you up at the most the best time to wake up. Um, not so much when you're rested, but which stage of the sleep cycle you're in. I think most people do need a prompt to wake up. Most of us, if we don't have an alarm clock, we have something else. We have the birds outside the window, we have the rising sun, we have the sound of the streets and kind of the, those kinds of things which are our natural time setters and which will help us. A gentle breeze from Hushabai Mountain Softly blows or lullaby But I think as well, probably the key thing is going to be the, the good sleep hygiene practices, I think is going to be first and foremost, you know, simple things that you can do. I mean, one of the things I always say about sleep, it's free, but we don't take advantage of it being free. So, you know, the room, it should, it should be cool, uh, it should be dark and it should be quiet and there should be no nesting habits. So ideally, there shouldn't be big plasma screens on the, on the wall and this kind of thing. The, the bedroom is there for sleep. So it should be your, your, your sanctuary. And I think another important thing is trying to get into a routine, and Samantha would have mentioned that, is that you try and go to bed at a similar time each night if you can. Now, I know I'm going to sound a bit of a killjoy, but you should try and go to sleep at the same time and rise at the same time. But I know people will try and kind of catch up at weekends. I would try and avoid that to a certain degree. Now, can you catch up on sleep? No, you can't bank sleep. You can't bank sleep. So if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're sleep deprived, you can't bank it. Or if, for example, if you know you're going to go be going for a period where you're going to have less sleep, you can't have a number of days beforehand to try and bank it, if you like. Samantha, what about the link between poor sleep and mental health? What is that relationship? So it's been demonstrated to be very strong at all stages of the life for children, for teens and for adults. So we know that when people have poor sleep, particularly if it's prolonged over many weeks, that they will start to have difficulty regulating their emotions. So just managing themselves in day day kind of interactions but over the longer time it may put them at greater risk of depression of anxiety and just living a good and happy life and that's sleep is directly related to that I mean I was I was interested to read that uh, if you take a, a teenager who is genetically inclined towards bipolar disorder for example before they are clinically diagnosed before they show any of the symptoms they will exhibit abnormal sleep patterns I would say there's there's some intriguing evidence that that there may be something different around for people who um, have an existing vulnerability. But when people have a vulnerability to um, mental ill health, 
that is long-standing, there are lots of ways that we can see it. So we can see it in their ability to manage their emotions in childhood as well as we could if we were to put them through an fMRI and look at how their brain is, is working. And so there's a shared vulnerability for mental health as well as physical health and sleep is a physical as well as mental health behaviour. And is it the case that uh, when it comes to sleep and mental health, there are neural circuits in the brain that overlap in any way? Um, there's again there's some evidence and I'd be very cautious about that because so much of what we understand about the neural circuits or what is the brain is doing when people are asleep actually doesn't come from people at all it comes from animals mm -hmm. so understanding an animal's emotions and an animal's drives and, and the way their brain is working is very very different to how the human brain works with I suppose advances in equipment and technology we're more able to do that and it does suggest that there are patterns of sleep um, or actually patterns of poor sleep that are linked with poor mental health and whether that happens early in life or is accumulated across the life course. Samantha, finally, uh, when it comes to sleep hygiene, we, we hear all of the recommendations, mm -hmm. you know, put your phone away, mm -hmm. keep it nice and cool and all the rest. But when it comes to the day, what can you do during the day to try and give you the best chance of having a good night's sleep? Um, I think that also comes down to sleep hygiene, but we would say be active get out, get out in the morning, in the daylight. It's one of the challenges in living in a country such as Ireland in the wintertime, I would say, mm -hmm. so that you need to have good, strong light in the morning and whether that comes from the sun or whether that comes from some other forms that we might um, be using now, technologies, um, to be active, to have a sense that you've achieved something that day, no matter how small, I think a sense of completion of the day, a sense of achievement of even the smallest task can help people feel that was a good day and now I'm able to sleep. And Giles, I was reading about the invention of the light bulb and it just being mm. the, sort of the death of sleep for all of us. Uh, what about the light bulbs in our houses and the kind of lights that we use and how we should change as we get closer and closer to bedtime? Yeah, so obviously adjusting light would be advisable. And I think, you know, the electrification of the world, that's only a factor because if you look at the, the time that people sleep, so going back to kind of the, the 1940s and earlier, the average adult was sleeping over eight hours. Now we're down to about 6.8 hours. Well, you can read more about sleep on rte.ie slash brainstorm. But for now, Samantha Dockery and Giles Warrington, thank you both very much. The programme is produced by Kieran O'Byrne and the editor is Jim Carroll. Research is by Louise Denver. Brainstorm is an RTE project in association with University College Cork, NUI Galway, University of Limerick, DCU, TU Dublin, Ulster University, Maynooth University and the Irish Research Council. This programme is available as a podcast from rte.ie slash brainstorm.